Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. When I was in high school in the late 70s, I was interested in being a pastor. I actually had been, actually since childhood, I was interested in being a pastor. Two of my brothers were already pastors, and one of them invited me when I was in high school to come and preach at his church. I didn't know what to preach about, so I asked my mother. Preach about love, she said. I'm sure she thought, and she may have even said at the time, that love would be a safe topic. I have no memory about what I preached on that Sunday, and I'm quite sure that I should feel sorry for anyone who had to sit there. But lo and behold, in our series weeks ago, on our series on imperatives as it was being laid out, I was tasked with preaching on the imperative to love. I know enough now to understand that while all of God's word is eternally true, no part of it is particularly safe. Not even, and perhaps especially, what it says about love. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us now to know yourself, to know our standing in you, to be able to see ourselves right so that we may look at one another correctly. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read uh, starting from 1 Peter chapter 1, just the first five verses to start. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. We sang about, Lord, I did not choose you this morning. This is the chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There are two imperatives in First Peter concerning love that I'm going to deal with this morning, and they're almost verbatim, with a little difference. In order for us to arrive at those imperatives on, on love, we need to understand the context from both First Peter and from some other scriptures, and we have to see it from a higher height. First of all, as we're looking at First Peter, he says he's writing to the aliens. Now, when we say... Uh, The aliens, what do we think of? Yeah. 
But we have to understand this word. It's parapedameos, which para, you may understand, para, beside, like paraphernalia. You know, paraphernalia is from alongside uh, uh, the dowry of a wife. That's where that word comes from. It's all her stuff that comes with her and her dowry, right? Para epidemas is alongside visitors or strangers. We are aliens. We're the alongside strangers. We're the resident aliens if we are in Christ in a world that is rejecting of God and uh, who has, that has rejected him and that is opposed to him. What connects us as resident aliens is that we are born again to a living hope and a salvation ready to be revealed at the end. Jesus introduces being born again to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, you know, Nicodemus comes to him and tries to, you know, talk big theological talk with him, and Jesus says, uh, well, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Whoa, what does that mean? What do I do to be born again? And Jesus then rebukes him and says, you don't understand that in order to be a part of the kingdom of God, you have to be born from above. You have to be born from God, spiritually born. John 3 says born from above. 1 Peter says reborn, but it's talking about the exact same thing. A prerequisite for being in the kingdom of heaven is to be born again. To be a Christian is to be made spiritually alive, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to be born spiritually, born into the household of faith. Last week, Pastor Killingsworth gave an analogy about the church being the body from the scripture. Well, here in the next chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 2, it talks about how God is taking us like the born again, like stones that have been made alive, calls it living stones. He's taking those born again stones and he's actually placing them into a structure, the bottom, the foundation of which is the chief stone, which is Jesus Christ, and he's building this structure out of born again people. And it's another analogy for who we are as a church and that this people would belong to him a people that didn't used to belong to him now belongs to him. A people that were not his people are now the people of God, it says in 1 Peter 2. A people that had not received mercy now receive mercy. A people who are his own possession, a spiritual house, a spiritual structure that God himself builds, the people of God, Jesus being the cornerstone. And as we see Jesus in that place, and because of what we received from him, we love him and believe in him. First Peter, it says in chapter 1, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." This salvation, he said, is what all the prophets talked about. This is what all the prophets were about. Up until that time, all the prophets were about this salvation, this Jesus coming. It says in Revelation 19 that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
everything is about this Jesus that was to come. And after he says that, that the prophets were talking about Jesus, he said, angels long to look at it. They just like to look at this whole thing. Like there's a, uh, uh, what do they call those in the ship, the windows, the round windows? Port, a porthole, and all the angels are in the, inside, and they want to look out at that thing, and they're pushing each other, trying to look. I want to look at it. Look at this thing. It's what God has done to save us and to build this structure that he's building. What is most of the book of 1 Peter about? It's about how born again, household of God, inheritors of salvation, lovers of and believers in Jesus, are supposed to behave in front of and toward one another and in front of and toward what I would call the locals. Everybody else. During the time of our stay on earth. We are right now in the time. If you look around you, look at everybody around you, everybody in this room is right now in the time of their stay. All of us. How are we supposed to behave? Well, the word for behavior is used seven times in the book of First Peter. It's reintroducing this in various places. And the King James Version, interestingly, translates this word as conversation. This should be your conversation. Well, it's an archaic usage for us. So when you go to First Peter chapter 3, and it talks about Wives, it says, likewise ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the world word be won by the conversation of their wives. And if we don't understand what that means, what we think is, well, wives, isn't this nice? The more you talk, the more your husband will be influenced <laughs> toward God. That's the way to do it. More words... It's evangelism, right? We're the poorer for our lost and limited understanding of this word. Behavior is a true translation for this word, but conversation in its old meaning helps us to see that our behavior has consequences. In other words, we don't behave in a vacuum just as, if, just as we don't have conversations to ourselves. If we do, there's a problem, right? How do born-again household of God, inheritors of salvation, lovers of and believers in Jesus behave in front of and toward one another and in front of and toward the locals during the time of our stay? Well, first, Peter, I just want to do a way up from above. First, Peter kind of has a Zoom feature. Okay, so first it starts off and you're looking at everybody, and then it zooms in on a couple specifics, and it zooms back out at everybody, then it zooms back in on a couple specifics, and it zooms back out. So first it talks to everybody. In chapter 1 through the verse 17 of chapter 2, it's for all born-again resident aliens, everybody. Then in 2.18 to 2.25, it's for servants and slaves who are born again resident aliens. And then 3.1 to 3.6, so it's zoomed in. 3.1 to 3.6, it's talking about 
born-again resident alien wives. Then 3.7, husbands. Then 3.8 to 4.19, it zooms back out again to everybody. And then from 5.1 to 5.4, it zooms back into the elders of the church. How are you guys supposed to behave? And then it, and then it zooms in on younger men, just one little brief mention of younger men. That's a significant one. And then it zooms back out again to everybody. While some of the zoom-ins are not at all applicable to the greater group, some parts of them are. For instance, the younger men are told to be subject to the elders. Is no one else to be subject to the elders? Well, of course they are. Apparently, younger men need a special reminder at that point. And even those parts which seem very specific may be transferable in application very easily. For instance, are wives the only people who are expected to, quote, do what is right without being frightened by any fear? Or is that broadly applicable? Yes, it is. Born again, resident aliens. I'm using this descriptor over and over again on purpose because I want us to have in mind the fact that there's something that 1 Peter is conveying about our position here on this earth that ought to be present in us all the time. It is written to spiritual sojourners. That's who it's written to, and he makes a point of it. Are you regularly considering the reality of your sojourning here? You know, you're not on vacation. This isn't a vacation. We're not a vacation club here at this church. We're here in exile. If you've become a Christian, you've become part of God's household, the spiritual family, the kingdom of God. It is a spiritual kingdom. And you are in exile. You are in a place where you shouldn't fit with the locals. You shouldn't fit. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 and 18, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We are part of an eternal kingdom. It goes right on, first verse of chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, this one, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. We groan. Christians should long to be home, repatriated. We're expats. We should long to be repatriated. We should have a craving for the mortal to be swallowed up by life. I think probably we're much more conscious on a daily basis of our craving for chocolate than we are for our craving for heaven and God's presence And yet when we sing, when we're together, we sing, For the kingdom of the Lord I hunger and I thirst. But do we? Except for when we're singing it. 
here, here, but here? For the kingdom of the Lord, do we hunger and thirst here? The more we act like the locals, the more comfortable we are with our earthly attire. The more comfortable we are in our earthly attire, the less we long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We are rich and comfortable and easily alarmed by anything that would be a threat to our comforts. That's us. Not so with those to whom the book of Hebrews was written. In chapter 10, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Joyfully. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have great endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. These believers weren't acting like the locals. Only someone with a very loose hold on their property, or someone whose property has a very loose hold on them, can joyfully accept its seizure. Agree? Born again, resident aliens. But, Pastor Max, this sermon is supposed to be about love. When are you going to get to that? Well, it is. The context is absolutely essential. Because the love of believers is inextricably connected to their new conversation and behavior. You cannot separate them. You have to know the one to have the other. And that's why these imperatives from 1 Peter are seated in the context that they're seated in. So the first imperative is chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And the second from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. The foundation for both of these love imperatives is laid in chapter 1 and built upon throughout the book. While the other imperatives in chapter 1 also apply to our behavior before the watching locals, our focus this morning is their application and the implications of those imperatives to our behavior before and toward our fellow sojourners, one another. One of the most and perhaps most of the most, perhaps the most repeated imperative in the New Testament is for believers to love one another. When it isn't said exactly that way, it's said like it is in another part of 1 Peter, love the brotherhood. There are so many imperatives concerning our love for one another, structured in so many ways. There is an imperative in chapter 1, out of which this imperative flows, and it's important for us to see it. 
It is the context given in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 1. So I want to start reading there to get to that very special foundational imperative. Verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Prepare means to gird up. We don't, uh, men don't wear dresses, but in older times they used to wear long flowing things, you know, like dresses. Not dresses though, I don't know what they call them. Like what? Robes, but there's got to be a word. But men would wear these long, and they would, when they'd want to work, they'd have to pull up, the, and then they'd put them between, they'd tie a knot and so that they're not dragging it in the water or dragging it on the ground, right? Maybe you have had to go into the water sometime, and you're wearing long pants, so you take your shoes and socks off, and you gird up your pant legs. You pull them up, right, so that you don't get them wet. Well, this is what we're supposed to do with our minds. We're supposed to gird up our minds for action. What's the action all about? Well, the action is that we're living as resident aliens. It isn't going to stop the action. The action's coming at you. Man, if you like action movies, welcome to life as a Christian. The action is coming at you, okay? And so we gird our minds up for action. Keep sober in spirit. Well, this imperative is about, not about simply not imbibing in spirits, and drinking, that can be included, but the primary thing in this has to do with our minds. That since we're in the middle of the action, we have to keep our minds and our wits about us. Something is at stake. And we have to keep it in front of us that something is at stake. Always. There's always something at stake. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is an expectation. What is your expectation? Fix it. Fix your expectation on Christ. I want Jesus. I love that song, Give Me Jesus. Phil, have we ever done that here? You can have all the rest. Give me Jesus. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Well, there was a time before God grabbed a hold of you and gave you the new birth that you were a local, simply a local. And so you lived like a local. And it says, don't be that shape anymore. You have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. God has born you in a spiritual birth Don't be shaped like you used to be shaped. Be shaped differently. Well, how should we be shaped differently? Well, then it says it. And this is the the important foundational one, right? Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, all of your conversation. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And this is the imperative we live with the working out of these commands in our lives based on one really big one. We're supposed to be like God. We're supposed to be like him. This is how we're supposed to live. In our behavior, in our actions toward one another, we're supposed to be like God. 
Our character, our behavior, our conversation is to be like the Holy One who called us. With this understanding, we can begin to approach an imperative about love. And so it says in chapter 1, verse 22, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. That word abides forever. Since you are now born again and have begun conforming to the holiness of God, for the sincere love of one another, fervently do it. You're starting to act like God. You're doing all these things. He has born you again, spiritually. Fervently do it. Get at it. Sincerely, unhypocritically, with no foe, F-A-U-X, no fake. Faux love is pretty soon revealed, isn't it? Because under just a little bit of pressure, faux love does what? Faux love, hypocritical love, insincere love is gone. All it takes is just a little bit of pressure. And you see this in relationships because just a little pressure and you'll find out who loves you. Or they'll find out if you love them, right? Fervently love. Well, this word is not the word that we think of like fervent hot. There are lots of places where people are fervent about things, where they hot. We think of burning and hot. This word isn't like that at all. This word is like a word that's used in the Gospels when somebody's praying fervently. And this is the, this is the, the, the image that the word evokes. It evokes an image of arms outstretched like this, stretched out in an imploring, give me, give me. I will receive you. Fervent, like when your grandchildren are running toward you, right? Grandpa, papa, papa, ah. No, no, this is what I do. No. They run in toward you, you put your arms out, or your little children, you put your arms out if you don't have grandchildren. You know, somebody that you love when they come in, you haven't seen them in a long time. There's Alex. Hi, Alex. I'll hug you later. You reach out fervently, loving them. It's very important that we don't separate verse 22 from verses 23 to 25 because 23 goes on and it says, for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. Again, this brings us back to the reality that something is different about our love than other loves. It is a seed that we're born with, we're born again with an imperishable seed. Everything the world understands. When the Beatles sing about love, they don't understand imperishable love. They don't understand it. When your favorite rock band, when your favorite 
emo singer. I don't know, what do people listen to now? When they sing about love, when the stars are yellow, they don't know. Do you understand me? Because it's all perishable. There are two kinds of love. And I'm not talking about separating Greek words. I'm talking about simply the kind of love that the locals talk about and know and the kind of love that is not known by the locals because it's from God. It is from, it's, he is the source of it. And it's completely different. The love born of God descends from the Father to his children and then from his children to one another. If we're born of God, we have received the love of God and are expected to exhibit it towards one another. Our love for one another is different than any love we see demonstrated by the locals because it is derived from the economy of the kingdom of heaven. It flows from the treasuries of God. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. If the world is loving, if the, if the locals are loving, then they must know God, right? That's not the love it's talking about. God says, if you love me, you'll love your brother. This is all in 1 John 4. It says that if you abide in me, you don't have to be afraid because your love is perfected. I used to be worried about this verse. I, I, I couldn't understand it because I was raised, well, everybody's born an Arminian. We all think when we're born that we've got it in us to please God and to fix everything. We have this idea, right? But then we, we, uh, we codify it as we get older by, by doctrines that are unbiblical that say that we have it in us to pull ourselves out by our own boot, bootstraps. And I would read this text and I would say, God... Like so many other places in the Bible, I would say, God, I can't. I'm still afraid. I'm still afraid. Because I'm supposed to love them, and if I don't love them, I'm still afraid. And I just miss the entire context of it. Love is from who? God. God is love. Is God prophecy? Is God healing? Is God all these other things? Nothing is said about God like love is said about God. Nothing else. In fact, it says in the scripture that you can have and do so many incredible things and present them to God, and he would say, like in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, you may do this, but you don't have love, so it's nothing. Or Jesus make, you might come to Jesus on the day of, of judgment and you might say, I did this and I did this and I did this. Remember what they did? Miracles. Cast out demons. And Jesus will say, I don't even know who you are. First Corinthians, which I reference, says, love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous. 
It does not brag, it's not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. This is God's character it's talking about. This is God's character. Are you afraid? If we treat others in love the way God treats us in love, we have nothing to fear. This is part of the reason why the subject of love isn't altogether safe. Because you have to abide in God. You have to live with that fountain of love flowing on you so that it's overflowing from you to other people. We read these words in 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings, and it might be the same wedding where they're filming an episode of Bridezilla. It wouldn't matter. The love of the born again is different because it flows from the treasuries of God. It's built upon unique God-derived features. It is not self-seeking. It is so unlike the local love that it even has this feature. It says that we are to love our enemies. Our enemies. Luke 6, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks you, and whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Treat others in the same way you would want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those From whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's me. That's you. Born again resident alien Christian. And if you don't live with that in mind with yourself all the time, that you're living, basking in the love of that God who has been that way to you, how are you going to give that to anybody else around you? Let alone your enemies. <laughs> love flows from God in much the same way that forgiveness flows from God. Jesus in Matthew 18 talks about the slave who after being forgiven would not forgive. He he had accessed the treasure trove of forgiveness and then he turned around and would not pour that onto his fellow servant and he was damned for it. We pray it in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
We're calling on God to treat us according to how we ought to behave. We collapse into God's forgiveness in the same way we collapse into his loving arms. And from that vantage point, we turn to one another. And what does our Heavenly Father do with our sin? Psalm 103, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. And Psalm 130, these are too good because they have one, a three, and a zero in both of them. Psalm 130, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. This is our God. He removes our sins. Which brings us to our last verse in 1 Peter 4, 8. Which has just a little more something to it. Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. This covering of sin is a special attribute of forgiveness. This word for cover here is related to the word klepto. Anybody a klepto? Okay, but I want you to let that stick in your head because it's important. What happens when somebody steals? You ever go home and find that somebody robbed you? I have gone home and found that I'd been robbed. And I thought, where did it go? Guess what? I never found it. It was stolen away and put under cover. In fact, if you're at some gathering and you see that special piece of chocolate that you really want, you steal it away. And you eat it and cover it. Right? Well, this has to do with sins that other people commit against us. And it says what we do with those sins, because we love them, we conceal them as far as the east is from the west. We cover them. We do what God does, because that's what we do. That's what his people do. They do what he does. He takes the sins. He removes them. They sin against us. We cover them. Matthew Henry says, about this, it is the property of true charity to cover a multitude of sins. It inclines people to forgive and forget offenses against themselves, to cover and conceal the sins of others rather than aggravate them and spread them abroad. Because we're acting like God. We're acting from his economy. We are receiving his love and we are extending his love. But then why does it say in verse 8, above all? Why does it say above all? Because it didn't say that back in chapter 1. Why does it say above all? Well, it also didn't say anything about covering a multitude of sins in chapter 1. And I think this is the point that God is driving home to us. We understand fervency of outstretched arms. We understand the kind of love that we were to be loved with. But why above all? Well, God knows that for us, the most difficult demonstration of loving people is going to be forgiving them. This is why he puts such dire warnings in front of us. We must not refuse. Above all, 
keep fervent in your love for one another. Above all. If you are a born-again resident alien, how fervent in love are you? Are you loving like God loves? Or are you loving like the locals? My guess is you're trying to keep your wits about you. And you're having a battle with both. Are your arms outstretched in love? Or are they folded in resolved defiance? How is your heart toward your children? How is your heart toward your parents? Toward the members of your small group? Toward one another? Toward your husband or your wife? You know, this is such a big thing. You guys... I want you to understand, and you'll follow me, I think, with this. We would rather have our property confiscated than forgive people that we don't want to forgive. And it's awful. Because for God, the property is nothing. But the forgiveness is everything. And so we have to love one another. Love one another fervently. Let's do. <laughs> Let's do. Go home, read First Peter all the way through. Read it to your kids. Try to figure out where he's zooming out and zooming in. But then concentrate on love. Love for one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your kind mercy. Lord, we are unworthy of your attention, we are worthy of your destruction, and yet you have loved us. And we are called and commanded to love one another in that way, the way you have loved us. Help us, O oh Lord. Make us alive. Help us to look forward to the day of Jesus and live now as if we're men looking forward to the day of Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.